We all saw it as DK engineers, people who were supposed to write those cool and fun SDKs that are supposed to go into the interpreter, into the JVM runtime, and change stuff. I'm not sure about you, but I'm not familiar with many companies who have those kind of people or with a clear job description for those. So we've hired from nearby areas. We've hired a lot of cybersecurity engineers. We've hired some embedded engineers. We've mostly hired people we felt were talented and knew enough about taking stuff apart and putting it back together to help us figure out together how do you change running code on the fly. I'm Ran Khimovic. I'm co-founder and CTO at Rookout. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, and today, how Ron Hemovich created a way for your development team to get real-time data from their production systems. All this and more on Code Story. Leran Hamovich is 34 years old and recently married. He and his wife enjoy traveling and eating delicious foods together and, of course, taking care of their awesome dog. Although it's been a while, Leran loves to scuba dive and enjoys a great whiskey, scotch, or fancy cocktail now and again. He's recently gotten into trying to make them at home or seeking out the latest bar to try something new. Just over five years ago, Liran and his co-founder realized that every time you need to change the way you observe or log your application, you have to fully release that application. They applied their cybersecurity way of thinking and built a platform to enable the instant change to logging and observability. This is the creation story of Rookout. Rookout, at the core of it, it's a dynamic observability platform, which is a long word, and, you know, it's very fancy, sometimes marketing speak. But for now, let's think of Rookout as a live debugger, as a kind of debugger that you can use in any environment, not just on your laptop as you're writing code, but you can use it in the cloud, you can use it even for Kubernetes or serverless, and you can go as far as using it in production in a safe and secure manner, and that's kind of the magic and the concept behind Rookout. So Rookout got started about five years ago, just over five years ago, when me and my co-founder tried to make a huge dent, make a huge difference in how we develop code and how developer tools are built. And what we've seen is that the way you monitor your applications, the way we all monitor applications, is defined when we write them. Everybody's talking about observability and the three pillars of observability. And for the most part, you have to define your logs, metrics, and spans as you write the application. And then every time you change them, you have to essentially write a new version of the application. You have to get it tested. You have to get it deployed. This can be a bit, I don't know, odd because, you know, you've written a log line and now all you want is one more variable to write. Or that log line is in the wrong verbosity and all of a sudden you are deploying an entirely new version of your application. Now, whether it's a monolithic application or a microservices application or a SaaS or not SaaS, there's a lot of risk, a lot of work, a lot of toil that goes into delivering a new version. And at the end of the day, sometimes all you really want to do is flip a single bit in the application memory to get that piece of information you need. We've kind of taken our ex-cybersecurity mindset, skill set, 
approach to life and programming and kind of said, we can do it differently. We can build a tool, we can build a platform that will allow you to change an, a running application so that you could instantly cre- get new logs, new metrics, new spans. You can even get full snapshots of the entire application state with a click of a button and without having to go through this tedious cycle of uh, rebuilding and redeploying. Tell me about the MVP, so that first product you built. How long did it take you to build, and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? I still remember that MVP. It was, you know, my co-founder and me in garage mode, just the two of us in his living room. We spent somewhere between two and three months building that MVP. And we actually pretty much built everything from the ground up in Python. We were fairly knowledgeable with Python. It felt like a good way, place to start. To be honest, we've deleted about 80% of that code base at this point in the company's life, and actually very little today is still written in Python, but back then it was good enough for us. So we started by writing an SDK for Python, a Python package that we dig into the interpreter, use various black magic, native extensions, unknown APIs, and kind of figure out how can we make that concept I've just shared with you a reality. Something that can go into the interpreter and get a snapshot, get a state of every little piece of code as it's running. Back then it was an MVP, it was just the two of us, so we actually focused a lot on code sharing. So a lot of the code for that SDK was also used for the server-side components that managed it and provided the backend for the orchestration and that span up the UI, which we've written up with JavaScript, React, web-based. Now that front-end component is pretty much one of the biggest uh, pieces that are still remaining. Now, obviously we've made tons of changes and tons of optimizations and various stuff, but still at the core of it, there is tons of similarity between that original uh, React.js MVP and what we currently have today is the core UI for the platform. With any MVP, you've got to make certain decisions and trade-offs about what you're going to start with, what you're not going to build, what debt you're going to take on technically. Tell me about some of those decisions and trade-offs you had to make and how you coped with those decisions. I remember early on, we were wondering a lot about the protocols. How is that SDK that has to be deployed everywhere is going to be communicating with uh, the backend that has to be managing it? Now, there are tons of restrictions that you have to think about and tons of considerations. Some of them we didn't think of well ahead of time. It can be about how do you embed that code in somebody else's application. After all, it's an SDK, so you have limited control of the environment. How do you encode? How do you know how much data is going to end up running on those protocols? How fast are they going to be? What's the latency? We've made some good choices. We've made some bad choices. For instance, we've opted in for using gRPC. Back then, gRPC was not only less popular than it was today, but it also brought to light a few challenges. Uh, Some of them had to do with termination of gRPC at the edge, which is easier to do today, but back then it was a real problem. And second, and even more importantly, is that uh, gRPC uses native extensions for certain runtimes, such as a Python and Node. Now those native extensions create a lot of overhead, which is not that bad if you are running your own application in your own container on your own OS. But if you have to build an SDK that has to run on every arbitrary OS, that has to do various packaging requirements, 
you'll often find that those native extensions are a headache because it's kind of breaking the abstraction. So instead of just installing your application and getting it up and running, they have to worry about am I using an operating system that's going to have those native extensions available or I'm going to have to recompile the native extensions. What happens with cross-compiling? What happens if I'm building my Python application on Windows and then I'm running it on AWS serverless Lambda? All of a sudden, these things can get messy. That was actually a kind of a decision that was decent for the MVP, but later on we had to spend a lot of time and effort migrating all of the SDKs and then having all the customers upgrade. Now, other dilemmas we've been facing with were, again, around the protocol. How do you manage control of the process? Here we've opted for JSON, a combination of JSON and Protobuf. Early on, we viewed Thrift. It was pretty popular in 2017, so we've opted for Thrift at a certain point, and then we had to remove that because we figured out it wasn't doing us any favors. I think those are the kind of decisions in an MVP-wide that are more complex and have longer-term implications because if you're looking at other decisions that are more local, uh, that have only one component, then those decisions are much easier to change later on. Let's say I've mentioned that we aren't using Python as much as we used to. We've actually rewritten about 70% of that code base into Go and a bit of Node. But as we did each of that one component at a time, it actually wasn't such a big deal and we could do it easily along the way as we were moving forward. So you've got your MVP, you're getting some traction. How did you progress the product from there and mature it? And I think to give context where I'm going with that is, you know, how did you build your roadmap and, and decide, okay, this is the next most important thing to build? So I think that's one of the most challenging questions ever because it's challenging I mean, I've been doing software engineering for over 15 years now as an engineer, as a team lead, product lead, tech lead, product manager. It's one of the most challenging things. I can say that for the most part, we tried to focus as much as possible on a customer feedback whenever it was available, whenever it was readily capturable. But there are a few screens you had to take, you have to take, we've taken that uh, feedback and try to adapt it to our needs. So first is kind of how much are we gonna get paid? Now it's not always you know foolproof, but if somebody's telling you I'm gonna pay $50,000 or $500,000 for that feature, that's a pretty good indication that both that it's important as well as that it's gonna help you reach, achieve your business goals. Even if it's gonna end up not an important part of your long-term roadmap, it might help the company achieve a short-term goals again depending on you know the size of the company and your revenue goals and all of that but if you can see a, a customer paying you upfront or after the fact for a feature then that's obviously a good consideration sometimes a customer won't pay you directly for that feature in which case you have to think for yourself how much is this going to impact my my work how much is this going to impact my deals but even more importantly is this feature request, is this complaint just about one customer saying it's a problem? Or is this the third time I've had this problem this week alone? Now, as things mount up, as, as you're meeting more customers, as you're getting more feedback, you should be able to 
pinpoint those areas where you're getting more negative feedback time after time, and then those deserve a prioritization. It's important when talking to customers to separate the problems for the solutions. While it's nice to get ideas for solutions from customers, and, now, and my customers are developers, so they always know how to fix everything that's broken with my application, it's more important to focus on what they're trying to solve rather than how they're trying to solve it. Once you've identified what customers are complaining about, what they're trying to solve, leave aside their ideas, which might be great, but think through the problem yourself and kind of try to figure out how can you solve the problem, what's easiest from an engineering perspective, what makes most sense for the roadmap from a product management perspective, what creates great synergies with other stuff you have in mind versus what might be stopping you from launching future initiatives, And then take into account also what the customer wants and how to do it, but don't overly focus on that. It's always super important to keep your vision in mind. That's often the tricky part. On the one hand, you do need to have a vision. You do need to know where you're going. You do need to think about where am I taking this and how is this, how all of those little pieces combining into a bigger picture. And what am I, what's going to be the next big things I'm going to do and not just the small things. But at the same time, it's important to stay reactive and keep listening to what people around you are saying. You shouldn't be overly focusing on your vision to the extent of ignoring the world around you. So let's switch to team then. So how did you go about building your team and what did you look for in those people to indicate they were the winning horses to join you? Early on, in the days of Rookout, I was, well, my title was CTO, I was also pretty much mostly doing engineering management. So I was the VP of engineering, if you will. And I've started hiring my first, you know, the first engineers. And we've grown to, to about 10 engineers with me managing all of them directly before I've hired the VP of engineering, which is pretty much a focus question. I would say I can talk plenty about that, but the bottom line, about hiring a VP of engineering as a co-founder and as an entrepreneur at a startup is focusing first and foremost on what you can do versus what you can hire for. And what I found potentially a bit late is that I could hire for a VP of engineering, potentially even hire someone who was better than me at the job. And there were other stuff I couldn't hire out for, other stuff that were more important and I should have been doing them myself. But back then as I was hiring, especially for core team members, I focused a lot on initiative, experience, on people who knew enough to prove that they are talented, that they can learn, that they can execute, but not necessarily requiring everyone to know everything they need to do for the job. For instance, our head of DevOps, our first DevOps engineer, actually came from backend engineering. He had some knowledge, some very basic knowledge around DevOps. He's, he had seen it being done at the previous role, but he wasn't very much hands-on with it. Now, it brought a set of challenges, that the fact that he was more of a backend engineer, but it was also a great learning opportunity for him, which both helped him develop his career, but also brought allowed him to be much more passionate and much more push the role way beyond. We also had SDK engineers, people who were supposed to write those cool and fun SDKs that are supposed to go into the interpreter, into the JVM runtime, and change stuff. 
I'm not sure about you, but I'm not familiar with many companies who have those kind of people or with a clear job description for those. So we've hired from nearby areas. We've hired a lot of cybersecurity engineers. We've hired some embedded engineers. We've mostly hired people we felt were talented and knew enough about taking stuff apart and putting it back together to help us figure out together how do you change running code on the fly. Well, let's switch to scalability then. And this will be interesting given the nature of your product. Did you build this to scale efficiently from day one? Or are you fighting this as you grow and gain traction? I think we planned to have it scalable from day one. And we made tons of mistakes along the way. Mistakes that, for the most part, I would say, stem from differences between a theory and real world. And in areas where we've had more experience, we made better judgment calls. But in areas where we didn't have as much experience, we actually made some pretty bad judgment calls along the way. Giving a few examples, we've kind of taken Python in our, as I mentioned, we've taken Python for our backend. And without thinking about it too much, we actually built uh, heavily on REST APIs. Tons and tons and tons of calls. Even at a very, very, very small scale, we already got to the point where we are serving dozens of requests, dozens of REST requests every second, which is not that bad, you know, if you're a large scale, but if you're starting to see that at a very small scale, then you're seeing that you have a problem. Especially for Python, the way a concurrency is managed is not that great. It's not the strength of the language, and we've put it at a very tight spot, trying to get tons of concurrency out of something that wasn't made for it. Now, there are various ways to squeeze some extra concurrency, whether it's a library such as Gevent or Greenlet, whether it's a using a web servers to manage the load, but those things each have their own uh, disadvantages and they're a bit finicky, especially when you try to combine them. And we actually ran into a lot of problems into that. We've also shifted from REST to GraphQL. We found that GraphQL allows us to reduce the number of REST requests we're making, somewhere between an order of 10 to an order of 100 per client, per service, per user. And we found that it was enabling us to do way, way, way more in a much simpler manner. And I honestly can't recommend it enough. GraphQL is awesome. I would also mention that we ran into problems around performance of the SDKs. Early on, it's very challenging to figure out how am I going to run with in someone else's code without impacting his performance? How am I going to collect data from running applications at scale, very high concurrency? Challenging thing is to figure out not only the differences between runtimes, but also the weak spots of each runtime, as well as how are different people using them. If you take Java, for instance, uh, then you can find Java servers that are very light, that are running a microservices-oriented architectures that are using Spring Boot, that have just you know a handful of Java files, potentially dozens of them. While you can, you can also have Java enterprise application servers such as WebLogic, and we've seen customers all of a sudden spin those up with 50 to 100 walls or ears, and with 5,000 threads or more. Now, obviously, the edge cases you're going to face are very different. For uh, small containers, st start time might be important. 
A, we saw that some of those customers had start times of over 40 minutes for their servers. And the way you impact small servers, medium servers, and large servers is entirely different. Now, besides Java on the JVM, we also have customers using us for Clojure, or Kotlin, or Groovy, or Scala. And each of those compilers create a slightly different version of the, those Java class files. And those changes end up with different performance profiles. And along the way, we found a lot of stuff. We found how to work better for different runtimes, how to work better for different versions of the JVM, how to work better for small versus large servers, and how to build safeties in place so that if things don't work perfectly, they won't be creating any adverse effect anywhere. As you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I think I'm most proud of the team and the product we've built and the business we've built around it. As we're finishing 2021, we're seeing a lot of companies that raised tons of money on the hype that was in the market over the past year. We're seeing a lot of teams that are having something around and don't care all that much. We're seeing it in corporates, we're seeing it in startups. And I think we have something unique in the fact that the team is very dedicated to the product, to, the, to each other, even more importantly, that they truly care about the company and our customers and that they're always focusing on doing their best, even if sometimes it puts them in clashes with each other because for each of them the best is something different, but they're all working together and striving for something real. And the fact that we've taken these technologies that used to be science fiction just five years ago and have built it and are running it at scale in dozens of companies, Fortune 500 companies, some of the biggest banks in the world, uh, is a huge achievement that was made possible first and foremost by the team just getting things done, whatever it takes. I love how you put the point about five years ago this was all science fiction. And I think that's just a testament to how fast things move and how fast your team has moved to build it. So kudos, that's really cool. One of my favorite things about Rookout, which I've been doing a lot over the past couple of months as COVID started to subdue, well, it's been conferences. Now, when I go to a conference and I walk the floor or I stand at the booth, I get to meet so many people and I get to demo them and I get to show them what Rookout is about. And I've seen so many jaws drop that it's, it, it's amazing. It's the best experience showing people what can be made and also that seeing that week after week, months after months, the same experience becomes easier to demo, easier to use and the wow effect is only growing every time we meet a new customer, every time we meet a new engineer that's new to what we're doing. Let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. So I know it's an engineering podcast, but I think we're all people. And especially as managers, sometimes our challenges are not so much about tech. I think one of my biggest mistakes early on at Rookout, and I'm wondering if the person I'm going to talk about is going to hear this episode, it's going to be interesting, is raises. Now, it, as people, as engineers, as managers, we often think of salary incrementally. So if somebody started at the company making, I don't know, 80k a year, then the next year they should be making 10 or 20% above that. 
But early on in Rookout, we had a DevOps engineer join us. It was pretty much his first gig. Man, he learned fast. He was one of the most talented engineers I've worked with. He learned super fast. And at the time, we pretty much focused on the raise, you know, incrementally, raise as it goes. We've raised him quite often, I think three times a year. They gave him some nice raises, but still, it's still, I don't know, he got from, I don't know, 50-60% more within a year, year and a half. But once he kind of started getting offered from the outside, all of a sudden, he got offers for almost double what we were paying him at the time. As much as we admired him, and as much as we thought he was an amazing engineer and wanted to pay him, we were kind of fixated on, we're raising him pretty high because we're giving him that 10-20% every 3-6 to six months. And at the end of the day, it wasn't that high. And he kind of, at some point, he came to me and said he got this crazy offer and he's leaving. I actually got him to stay. I talked to him. I asked, I told him he deserves it. I told him we can pay him. He stayed for a while longer. He also did great since then. But I have to say our relationship since then hasn't been the same. Since he came to me saying, I took another job because you are underpaying me. And I've kind of taken that lesson to heart since then. And I try to focus as much as possible on what people should be making rather than what they are making today. Which also kind of brings a different topic of compensation in general. And where as a company or as an employer you want to be on the salary base? Do you want to be someone, a company that's underpaying or overpaying your employees? Well, this will be fun to ask. What does the future look like for Rookout the product and for your team? So the future is going to be super fun. We've got tons of conferences over the next few months. So if you happen to be jumping by a conference, let us know. We might be there. We're tons of cool swag and even better demos. We are also have a, a free tier that everybody can hop on and use and just go to rookout.com and start using the product and experimenting with it and have fun with it. We've recently launched our live logging component. I've mentioned that we have these things called dynamic observability, uh, which is kind of our way of saying you should be able to determine the data you get on the fly without having to change the code over and over and over again. We've talked mostly about how do we do that for live debugging, how do we set non-breaking breakpoints on any line of code and collect data from that, but our story goes beyond that, our vision goes way beyond that, and we believe that all forms of data should be dynamic, hence dynamic observability. It can be logging, it can be metrics, it can be spans, it can be BI data, With live logging, we're taking that mindset to the logging area. We want engineers to be able to decide in real time what logs they want versus what logs they don't need. So it can be about adding or removing or changing verbosity, but it can also be smarter and more focused. So let's say you have a customer you're very interested in. So why don't you get debug level logs for that customer without turning the entire system into debug? Why don't you get debug level logs for specific environments you care about or for specific accounts or even just for yourself if you're just, you know, running a unit test or a manual test on a remote environment, staging, production, whatever. Why don't you just get debug level logs just for you without impacting the, the environment as a whole? And that's 
the kind of things we're working on, making more and more parts of observing our applications dynamic rather than static, so that we can just focus on the data we want and instantly get it, instead of constantly having to walk backwards from the data we happen to have. Let's switch to you, Liran. Who influences the way that you work? Name a CEO, CTO, an architect, really any person you look up to and why. I would say I'm looking up to more often than anyone else to my wife. She's also working in tech. She's a product manager. She's very not techy, and yet she's extremely techy at the same time. But I think I look up to her first and foremost because people love her. People always love her. She always knows what's going on with other people. She always knows what to say and how to approach things. And she has this amazing capability of blacking out whatever is going on with her, whatever is going on inside, and just step into her room, be the best with the people there, no matter what's going on. And I think this is something I often envy her as I'm managing people, as I'm walking late nights, as I'm finding myself in tons of weird and difficult situations with people I know and people I don't know. It's always something I try to live up to. That's a great answer. I 100% love and support that answer. Well, we talked about a mistake earlier, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? The most important thing by far is to focus on impact. Know what your business is doing. Know how it is being measured. And focus as much as possible on that. If whatever you're doing is going to make a big impact on that, then it might be worthwhile doing. If it's not, then it's probably not worthwhile doing. And even if it's going to make an impact, ask yourself and be true to yourself. Is this the thing that's going to make the most impact right now? Now, this idea is something that can make me reevaluate pretty much every decision I've made since founding Rookout, whether it's about uh, hiring roles, who I hired, when I hired. It can be about changing uh, product tasks, architecture tasks. But truly, that's that's the most important thing. Now, when you're doing things day to day, when the phone is ringing, when Slack is pinging you, when bugs are coming in, when you have a, already have a vision in mind, it's very easy to get into the nitty gritty details and just get stuff done. But it's way, way more important to focus, keep focusing on the bigger picture, keep focus on the impact. No matter what business you're in, try to distill to yourself this one thing that matters the most and do as little as possible that doesn't affect it and do as much as possible that affects it greatly. Well, last question, Leron. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? Nobody cares what you've built. Focus on the problem you're solving and the people you're solving it to. That's fantastic advice. Straightforward, direct, and the right message. Well, Liran, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Rookout. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. And this concludes another chapter of Coat Story. 
Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.